My name is Tim Hodge. Uh, some of you I know, some I have not yet met, um, which is exciting. I, many years ago, used to be part of this church living uh, down the road in Gloucester, uh, stretching back probably even into the last century, so that's quite a long time. Um, and a few years ago, uh, you as a church, along with some other people, sent me away. Uh, I remain convinced that's not, or I hope that I'm convinced, that's not because you didn't like me but because you are quite a mission-minded church. You sent me to try and help people understand more about the gospel in a different place that is not Gloucester. And that place is in New Zealand, a small country at what some people think is the bottom of the world. And then uh, Darren's invited me to tell some stories about that a little bit later on, but for the meantime, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. So if you have a Bible in front of you, and that'd be good, thanks very much for inviting me to speak about uh, Pentecost. I wasn't really sure, Darren. You said... You said it's going to be a Pentecost celebration. You can speak on any passage. It doesn't have to be Acts 2, you said, yeah. which I took to mean, please don't speak on Acts 2. <laughs> so Acts, we're going to Acts 1. Can I raise this up? Does that work? Yeah, thanks very much. You may uh, have heard of the butterfly effect. Uh, and you may have heard of the mathematician Edward Lorenz. You may have not. In 1961, Edward Lorenz was using a computer model, an early computer model, in his work. On, he was cutting edge in chaos theory. Not something I know much about, but a fascinating subject. He was working at the time on weather prediction models, and he shortened the decimal number. And I've written this down. He punched in 0 .506 instead of 0 .506127 that he entered the last time into this computer model. And the result was a completely different weather scenario. From that, he wrote an academic paper called Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings um, in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? Which, in terms of academic papers, is a, is a much more interesting title than some of them. <laughs> you may have heard of the butterfly effect, that amazing um, theory of meteorology, that tiny, tiny changes in weather systems in one part of the world have huge effects in another part of the world something as small as the flap of a butterfly's wings. And we see the butterfly effect at work in the person and life of Jesus. Just one solitary, seemingly insignificant life. Yet 2,000 years after he walked the earth, his life continues to uh, impact the whole world. I understand here on Sunday mornings you've been looking through the book of Luke in the New Testament and Acts chapter 1, the whole of Acts, is this butterfly effect of the mission and the growing influence of Jesus. Now, Acts is the second part in a two-volume two story written by somebody called Luke. Um, not really sure why he called it Luke and Acts. Could have been Luke part 1 or part 2, but there we go. At the end of Luke's gospel, we see Jesus being murdered, alone, seemingly defeated. And he comes back to life. And, uh, and gathers his team around him. And here in Acts chapter 1, and throughout the book, he gives them the mission of, the, uh, of reaching from where they were in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth with the good news that Jesus is alive and we can know God. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to finish with some implications for us today so you know where we're, where we're going. So the butterfly effect of Jesus grows and grows, and in 2016, we are here as testimony to being part of that mission. There has been geographical and numerical growth in that mission. Geographically, we are not in Jerusalem. We are quite a long way from Jerusalem. And if you normally live in New Zealand, you're about as far away from Jerusalem as it's possible to get. There is numerical growth in the mission. 
There's about 2 billion people in the world today who claim the name of Jesus. Quite a bit more than the 120 that are mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Yet the mission isn't over. Vast swathes of the world, and indeed our own communities here in Gloucester, do not know Jesus, do not follow Jesus, and do not want to follow Jesus. And Acts 1 speaks to us today just as much as it did to those first followers of Jesus. Thank you, Darren, for reading Acts, uh, Acts 1. I'm going to pray again, if that's right. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us the opportunity to look at Acts chapter 1 today. Convince us and convict us, we ask, by your Spirit, to be those on mission, actively encouraging the butterfly effect by speaking of Jesus and living for Jesus where you've placed us. Being involved with the spreading of that message right around the world. Give us attentive minds and receptive hearts for what you teach us this morning, we ask. Amen. I mean, a former Archbishop of Canterbury once said, it's not the church of God that has a mission, it's the God of mission that has a church. It's quite pithy, quite like that. It's not the church of God that has a mission, it's the God of mission that has a church. It's going around in my head for a few months, and we can see that here in these verses, because our focus this Pentecost celebration day is the God of mission. Acts is a sequel to Luke, and like any good sequel, the book starts with a recap. That's there in verse 1 to 3, if you can see verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus. Well, hang on, who is Theophilus? Turns out we don't know much about Theophilus. His name literally means lover of God. And he must have been wealthy because he funded this gentleman called Luke, who was a doctor, the author of Acts. And Theophilus funded Luke to travel, to research, to write up his, his findings. Acts is all about the continuation of the mission of Jesus, the butterfly effect from that one solitary life. And how do we fit into that here and now? Well, right at the beginning of Acts, in verse 1, we see two examples straight away that we may follow about how we could be involved in Jesus' mission. It may be that some of us are like Luke. Maybe some of us are like Theophilus. In terms of Theophilus, your greatest contribution to mission local and mission global may be to help finance it all. Often in the church, there's too much talk about money or not enough talk about money. I don't know if you found that. Money's a bit... But money makes things happen. And Theophilus was hugely generous. It may be that God has gifted you in the ability to, uh, to earn and manage money. And like Theophilus, you love God. It's great. Continue being generous for the sake of Jesus and his continuing mission. It may be that you're like Luke. Luke was a doctor, a professional man who used his methodical training to research and write and present Luke and Acts. You too may be professional. You may be great at researching. You may be able to lead God's people. It may be that you're wondering whether you should leave your profession and train to be a pastor or a missionary. We've no indication that Luke stopped being a doctor. Likewise, although I do encourage lots of people to consider being full-time pastors for local and global mission, don't necessarily leave your profession. Become an elder, become a trustee, serve on mission boards, strategize for the kingdom, like Luke. Anyway, that's only five words into Luke 1, so let's, uh, let's keep going. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen, after his suffering, this is verse 3, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus works through the Holy Spirit, verse 2, and to the apostles, 
And likewise, we need the Holy Spirit to continue the work of Jesus uh, in us and to others. Jesus is alive. He was murdered, but verse um, 2, sorry, verse 3, he gave many, many convincing proofs that he was alive. Many in our time scoff at the very notion that Jesus or anybody came back to life. Just doesn't happen, does it? Luke documents it and is convinced by it. The issue for Luke is not if Jesus rose from the dead. The issue is the implications of that. And the rest of Acts looks at that and the growing mission of Jesus. The good news is that Jesus is alive. Jesus is forgiving people of their sin. And that's the butterfly effect of the kingdom of God. Verse 4. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is asking his disciples to stay in Jerusalem for a while. He's hinting at what we now know as the day of Pentecost, which is indeed the next chapter, chapter 2. Read ahead into chapter 2, but the short version is that this bunch of timid disciples are transformed, just as Jesus said they would be, into fearless and intentional witnesses for Jesus by the power and action of the Holy Spirit. Then we get into the heart of the chapter. Indeed, verses 6 to 8, I'm suggesting, sets the agenda for the whole book of Acts. Verse 6, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The confusion of the disciples in verse 6 is clear and understandable. Uh, Hang on, Jesus. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? This time, Jesus? We want to go back to the good old days, to the glory days of Israel, when King David was on the throne and the kingdom was clearly marked and defined. We were in our homeland with our people and our ethnic identity. February the 6th is a bank holiday in New Zealand. It's called um, Waitangi Day. Yes, it is. And it's named for the place where the Waitangi Treaty was signed in 1840. The treaty was an agreement between the British Crown um, and uh, and Maori chiefs, the Tangata Whenua, the people of the land, over the issues of land and sovereignty. It was a founding document for a new nation. It has profoundly shaped New Zealand and it continues to do so. Yet each Waitangi Day is contentious. It's not a huge celebration almost. Because some in New Zealand want to go back to some mythical, homogenous time when New Zealand was purer than it is now. And depending on the the viewpoint, either back to early European settlement or further back to early Maori settlement. Both those seem a bit like the disciples here. Are you going to restore our kingdom and our place? Yet in verse 7 and verse 8, Jesus, in contrast, gives this staggering insight into what God's kingdom is actually like. The disciples don't ask Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom. It's, it's assumed. And Jesus doesn't correct them. The disciples want to know when Jesus is going to restore the kingdom. Not, not if. And Jesus in verse 7 tells them that dates are irrelevant. Look at verse 7. 
Sure, verse 7 refers to the return of Jesus at some point to earth. Maybe, maybe this afternoon. Maybe in millennia. We don't know. Given that Jesus in the gospel said that even he didn't know the date, it's not surprising that the disciples don't either. The bigger issue is not so much about the return of Jesus, but about the whole mission. Sometimes as soon as there's a new war or a new government or a major world disaster, some Christians immediately get out charts, massive pieces of paper, spreadsheets, notebooks, and say, oh, look, this bit of what's happening now in 2016 correlates to that bit of Daniel or that bit of Revelation. And so those two things and that thing there means that Jesus is going to kind of come back uh, at midday, a week on Tuesday. No. Talk of dates is irrelevant. Jesus himself says so. And if it's your word against Jesus' word, I'll go with Jesus' word, thanks. Jesus is making the point that the mission is here. We are in the mission. And in verse 8, Jesus says he's going to give power to his disciples. And that power is from the Holy Spirit. It's not some nondescript generic power, but it's a power specifically for witnessing. That is the celebration of Pentecost. And that's, and that's the great difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Christians have the power of the Holy Spirit to witness, to say that Jesus is God, to live for Jesus, to speak for Jesus. Whereas non-Christians think of Jesus at best as a good man and a moral teacher. My wife, Lizzie, likes a cup of tea in the morning to get her going. So each morning I switch on the kettle and I get a mug out of the cupboard, put a tea bag in it. Uh, in our kitchen, we have uh, three sockets, power sockets. So um, it doesn't seem to be very many with all the things we have to plug in and out. So we do spend quite a lot of time plugging different appliances in and out of these three um, sockets. So because it's the morning time and I'm a little bit woozy sometimes, it sometimes takes me ages standing by the kettle before I realize that sometimes it's not actually plugged in. It's switched on, but it's not in the wall. There's just no power. And some people live like that spiritually. We have the ability to be switched on and connected to the power. But there are many who aren't, just aren't connected at all. If you are not a Christian here, and I'm making the assumption that in a room of this size, some of you will not be followers of Jesus. If that is you, become connected to the power source. Know that Jesus is alive. The Holy Spirit is powerful. The Holy Spirit is glad to indwell you, to transform you, to empower you, to enable you to love Jesus, to be like Jesus, to be a new person as a follower of Jesus and a member of the church. To become a Christian is to invite the Holy Spirit into your life, and he will give you power to be a witness about how Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. Your your own Pentecost, if you like. And that power is available to you, but you do need to connect. Ask a Christian friend about how to do that. They'd love to pray with you and for you. And so the disciples here, back in Acts 1, they hear Jesus talk of power, and they think, that's great, we're going to help you restore the kingdom. Where? They say, oh, here in the city of Jerusalem, says Jesus in verse 8. Great, says the disciples. And the wider area of Judea, says Jesus. Okay, says the disciples. Oh, and Samaria, the, the land that's very near you that you don't actually like. What? Say the disciples. Oh, and to the very ends of the earth. Are you mad? Say the disciples. 
Because the issue for the disciples, even having been with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, is about when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. The huge, huge shock for them is that the question isn't really when, but where. The kingdom goes beyond the boundaries of Israel to the region and to the whole world. The whole world needs to hear about the resurrection of Jesus. That is the butterfly effect of Jesus. Why does the whole world need to hear about the resurrection of Jesus? It's because it's God's mission's mission's purpose for the whole world. For Mari, for Bangladeshis, for Germans, for Bolivians, for Tongans, for Ukrainians, especially after the win last night. And uh, and Canadians and Japanese and Algerians and Mongolians and Rwandans and Indonesians and Danes and Guatemalians and Brits and everybody who lives in Gloucester. We're included in the butterfly effect of Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation in the Bible, there's one consistent message. God is redeeming a people for himself from every tongue and every tribe. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. They were chosen by God not because they were better than anybody else, not because they were more holy, more devout, not at all. No, the whole point is that nations still intact in their identity are invited to share in being part of the kingdom of God. So here in Acts 1, Jesus is reinforcing to his disciples that his mission is for all people, in all places, at all times. You will be my witnesses, says Jesus. Witnesses of what? Witnesses according to verse 3, of the convincing proofs that Jesus is alive, eyewitnesses in their case. And then in verse 9 to 11, Jesus leaves. He's been resurrected, he goes, now he goes to heaven, confusing the disciples who are taught by two angels that Jesus will one day return in the same way he's left. And we're still waiting for that day, but we look forward to it, because then the mission will be over. But before that day, there's lots of work to be done. Well, what can we do? What can we do? That's all well and good, Tim. But what can we do? It's been interesting for me to hear some of the debates around the referendum vote next month on June the 23rd. I don't have a vote. I have no influence over that. So I can completely happily ask everybody without having to follow through on anything. It's great. I have spoken to friends and family as I've been traveling around the UK the last couple of weeks. I've been asking everybody their own opinion. might ask you yours later on. I know know you're not supposed to ask how people are going to vote, but you can't influence me because I don't have a vote. And some of the people I've spoken to are very, very passionate about this vote coming up next month. On both sides of the equation, actually. It hasn't really helped me, if I did have a vote, decide. And what fascinates me is I've heard lots and lots of arguments for and against, largely around three issues. I don't know if you've heard those. And the three issues are economics, sovereignty, and immigration. I've heard very little discussion, even from Christian friends and family, around theology. What I mean is that if you're a Christian, being a follower of Jesus should influence how you vote. Whether it's in June or local election or general election. I no doubt some in the room here will vote leave and some will vote remain. What Acts 1 asks of us is, will mission, will telling others about Jesus be easier if as a nation we are part of the EU or separate from the EU. If to be a Christian is to be mission-minded, does being in the EU help or hinder that? I don't know. But it's worth considering as you vote. And you should think about it more because you do get to vote and I don't. 
Here's a few suggestions for us to participate in God's mission based on the idea of verse 8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, and I'm not going to mention the EU. Our Jerusalem is those who are around us. For the disciples, Jerusalem is where they were, and our Jerusalem is for those who are geographically um, close and culturally close. Geographically close and culturally close. Maybe you could choose one neighbor or colleague and pray for them by name, specifically, regularly. Maybe you could invite uh, a neighbor to lunch simply to get to know them more. Maybe you could offer a practical service to a family in need in your street. You could mow the lawn of of an elderly neighbor. You could wash a car. Maybe you could read a book on evangelism, uh, like evangelism made slightly less difficult, which is excellent, as is out of the salt shaker. Read it and discuss it with somebody else in the church. Maybe you could be involved or you could start a Christian fellowship group in your office, your school, your, your factory, so that together with others you can be a witness in your community. I loved very much that when we lived in Gloucester, Liz was, uh, was working a, for a company down Bristol Road, and when she joined she was the only Christian, as far as she could tell, of about 50 people. And she, uh, she and I were praying for another Christian to join her at work. And uh, a vacancy came up, and the company employed a lady called Anna, who was a Christian, part of a different church in Gloucester, but very much a sister in the Lord. And the two of them used to just meet every week and pray together for their colleagues. Very straightforward, very simple. After a while, some of them were going, are you praying for us at lunchtime? Uh, yeah. Huh. Could you pray for this then? Sure. Great thing. You could... In terms of culturally close and geographically close, you could help maybe run uh, the, the Roots program each, each month. Widening out to Judea. Judea is reaching out to people in our own culture, but in the wider area. Culturally close, but geographically a little bit more distant. So you could volunteer to serve on committees. Uh, a local play center, a Keep Gloucester Tidy committee, uh, the local rugby club, whatever it might be. You could contact Richard Graham, who I think is the, lo- is he the MP, yeah, Richard Graham, whoever else your MP is, um, about an issue that concerns you. You could organize a, a work dinner for those in your profession. Ask a Christian from your profession to speak to this after-dinner uh, gathering. You could pray for school head teachers by name regularly, including John Coles, who works in this building here at Heron. Ask, how can we pray for you? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria is reaching out across cultures, but near to home. So geographically close, but culturally distant. And be a host for international high school students, people coming from overseas to study at high school in Gloucester. Visit a church that has Sunday services in a non-English language, plenty throughout the UK and further afield when you're on holiday. Mandarin, Cantonese, Korean, Arabic, French, Japanese. God's native tongue is not English. And it's good for those of us who are monoglots to be reminded of that. Invite international students from the University of Gloucestershire with you to the shops or to, to dinner. Often we forget how exciting the mundane can be for those people who are international students. Sadly, uh, the experience that I have in New Zealand is that many international students leave New Zealand without ever having been inside a Kiwi home. And I suspect the same is true in the UK. Also for a Samaria suggestion, maybe visit the leaders of one of the Gloucester mosques or a Buddhist temple or a Jewish synagogue in an effort to understand 
friends who are in these faiths. And the ends of the earth is international outreach, those who are culturally and geographically distant. One of my habits in the morning, not every morning, but in some mornings, is to pray for the people who have made my clothes. Today I am wearing clothes that, uh, according to the labels, have been made in Sri Lanka, Bangladesh and China. Countries I know not much about. I know a little bit about Sri Lanka and Bangladesh because I like cricket and so do they. But I do know that the workers who made my clothes in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and China probably work very long hours for very little pay, probably have financial worries, probably have, because of that, strife in their families, probably don't know any Christians at all. So I have a short little prayer for the people who made my clothes that they may come to know Jesus, that the Lord in his graciousness may send somebody who knows the Lord Jesus to work alongside them or to manage them, or that they meet in the street in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh uh, and China. Second suggestion about uh, reaching out to culturally and geographically distant people is to buy the book Operation World, which some of you might have heard of, which is a guide to praying for the nations. It's it's a great, if heavy, book. Heavy physically, that is. (laughs) Um, It has heaps and heaps of facts and figures about how God is at work in each country, and each day has a different country or different region to pray for. Today, May the 15th, the country of the day is Equatorial Guinea. I know nothing about Equatorial Guinea. I, along with many probably, would struggle to put Equatorial Guinea on the map. But thanks to Operation World, I can try. Thanks to Operation World, I've discovered that there are more people who live in Gloucestershire than live in the entire country of Equatorial Guinea. I can learn about the challenges and opportunities for the gospel in that nation, thanks to the wonderful resource of Operation World. Another thing about ends of the earth stuff, adopt a country to pray for, maybe Equatorial Guinea. It's just too hard. Long ago I I admitted to myself it's just too hard to pray for the entire world. So 21 years ago, which is nearly as long as I've been a Christian, I adopted two countries which I pray for on a regular basis. And those two countries are New Zealand, short story, be careful what you pray for, uh, and Djibouti. Uh, you get one point if you've heard of Djibouti, and you get an extra point if you can place it on the map. I don't pray every day by any means, um, but I was so, so excited a few years ago to receive as a gift a Djiboutian banknote, um, which I use as a bookmark in my Bible. And whenever I see the Djiboutian banknote or handle the Djiboutian banknote, there's a quick five-second prayer for the work of the gospel in the nation of Djibouti. Adopting a country far easier than praying for the whole world. So adopt a country or two. Maybe adopt Equatorial Guinea. Maybe memorize our key verse, Acts 1.8. Um, maybe purchase one of Darren's fine artworks here. Which are how much, Darren? I can't spell it. <laughs> <laughs> Darren is happy to give away these for free to anybody, <laughs> to anybody who wants them. Memorize Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Have a picture, paid or not, on your wall, in your home. Maybe you could telephone uh, somebody you know overseas uh, who is uh, working for the gospel to offer encouragement. Because we do live in an age when there's not much encouragement. A simple phone call goes a long way. Maybe you're thinking about uh, retirement. Maybe you could plan ahead and think about, maybe I could retire overseas. 
Um, and maybe I could use my skills and experiences overseas. Uh, there's a, a delightful couple called Howard and Val, who you probably won't have met, who are uh, a, a retired couple from New Zealand. And they thought, what can we do for overseas mission? You know, we've been dairy farmers for all our lives. But then they worked out that they were in a part of a church and they were, had hosted lots of people when they came through and they were quite good at feeding people and um, letting people sleep in their house. So they thought, oh, perhaps we could do that. Where can we feed people and let people sleep in a house for the cause of the gospel worldwide? Worked out that there was a mission agency in southern Spain that was crying out for um, hostel managers for this 15-bed uh, house where missionaries from uh, the north of Africa who are often in, in, in northern African countries as Christians uh, on visas that were not for Christian activity, kind of underground planting churches, when they got really stressed and a bit burnt out, they would go to southern Spain, recuperate, Sabbath, thanks to Howard and Val. Fantastic. All because they went, what can I do when I retire? It might be that you retire and you stay in Gloucester, and that's fantastic too. So all these things are things we can be involved in, whether it's groups of people who are culturally and geographically close, or culturally close and geographically distant, or geographically close and culturally distant, or geographically and culturally distant. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We can all be involved, whatever our gifts and passion. And for the church, this is the result of Pentecost. We celebrate what God did then by being involved in what he's doing now. It's the DNA of who we are and what we do. Because we follow Jesus, we are involved in mission local and global. And I personally am hugely grateful to Abbey Church for such a good grounding in the gospel whilst living in Gloucester. And I'm still hugely grateful to you as Abbey Church for being in partnership with the things that we're doing in reaching students of Christ at the ends of the earth. I sometimes tell friends in New Zealand about this verse. Acts 1.8, that New Zealand gets in the Bible. Because New Zealand really is the ends of the earth. It's the end of the line. Nobody passes through. It's about as far as you can get from Jerusalem. Next stop, Antarctica. So thank you. Thank you for all you do for Mission Local here in Gloucester and Global. In all this local and global mission, we are part of this butterfly effect. From Jesus as that one man to influence our neighborhoods, our districts, our nation, and our world with the good news about Jesus. If you are a Christian, and I know that many of you are, rejoice that the butterfly effect of Jesus has reached you, has reached us. Maybe pick one of these mission suggestions that I've given for your own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth orbits. Ask a mate to hold you to that if you're not a Christian, ask Jesus to reach you. He can and he will if you ask him. I'm going to invite those of us who are willing and able to stand as I lead us in prayer. And then uh, Darren will lead us in the rest of our time together. So if you're willing and able, do you want to stand with me and I'll lead us in prayer about Acts 1. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you're the Lord of the mission. Ever since that first Pentecost, you've been inviting your people to participate in mission local and global. Thank you that the butterfly effect of your life and your resurrection has reached even to us. Those of us who are Christians are so grateful. 
And we long for those in this room, in this city, who are not Christians, to become Christians and to join you in your mission. Save those who need you, we ask. Use those of us who are Christians in a variety of ways and send us out in our own Jerusalems, Judeas, Samarias, and the ends of the earth, we ask. For your ultimate glory in celebration of that Pentecost day so long ago. Amen. 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 Thanks, Darren.